Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Demon Podcast, here with Victor, and a very special guest today by the name of Melina Melgoza, who is a UCLA grad, an educator, a whole bunch of other things. I'll actually go ahead and toss it over to her, just so she can give us her bio and I don't miss anything. So Melina, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Sure. Hi, Victor. I'm really excited to be here today. I know it's been a little bit of a hassle getting our schedules to work and making sure all the tech is working. And so I'm so happy that that I'm here today with you all. Um, I am a public school teacher, so I'm here to talk a little bit about my experience as a public school teacher. More particularly, I like to identify identify myself as an ethnic studies educator and ethnic studies teacher, credentialed in teaching history. So really, I can teach any history in high school. So ranges from world history, U.S. history, to economics, government. I've actually taught all four of those courses. But currently, I am teaching an ethnic studies course. It's, I love teaching history in general. I love teaching. But um, ethnic studies is definitely something that I hold close to my heart and that I, um, that I really love, love teaching and being in a space with, with students. But I also teach U.S. history and I also teach world history right now. And so, like I said, I'm just really excited to be here. I'm a Los Angeles native, and it's 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 been nice coming back into these communities to to be a teacher. And so that's a little bit of what I'm going to be talking about today. Yeah, it seems like um, history is definitely something that you're um, interested in, and that's great. Just um, it offers so much insight into our past and how we can um, utilize information from the past in the future. In terms of ethnic studies, it seems previous times that I've talked to you. It's been something very beneficial for you in terms of how you were able to develop as an educator and something that had a very profound effect on you. Can you tell us a little bit about the benefits that it provided for you that you are now trying to extend over to your students? Yeah, definitely. Well, one of the reasons that I became a teacher is because a lot I, I did have really great teachers growing up, but I definitely wish I would have been exposed to ethnic studies far earlier in my career my trajectory in education, I really didn't take any ethnic studies course until I was in college and I took a Chicano studies course. And so for me, that was really an eye-opening experience in terms of my history and the history of my ancestors. And I knew that it was something that I had to come back and give to uh, other students at a younger age. And so I think ethnic studies really is truly something beautiful. It's healing and it's liberatory and it focuses on the experience of African-Americans, Asian-Americans, including Pacific Islander and Arab-American studies, as well as American Indian and Native American studies, Chicanx and Latinx studies. And I, I think that learning this, these histories is is so important. And, and I appreciated that experience, even though I, I had it all the way up until college when I was already an adult. And I hope that I can do that for for my students as well. Yeah, I can definitely see the benefits of fostering that understanding and solidarity between these groups. Um, but when you say that ethnic studies is healing and liberating, can you explain to us a little bit about what you mean by that? About my experience with my first ethnic studies course, when I say healing and liberatory, I think what I mean it to say is that when you are in an ethnic studies course, it is meant to heal you not just from education you may have had before or lacked, um, but also to provide a community space where you can build community with classmates and teachers. And what I mean by that is that a lot of the times education is very much 
multiple choice centric and teacher centric in the sense that you're there to learn for, from someone and, and, and ethnic studies, the goal is that we're there to learn from each other and to learn how to love and accept one another. And we do that through things like community circles. Um, we do that through things like um, gallery art walks where they exhibit their art and learn from each other. And it's liberatory and liberating in the sense that students don't need the classroom anymore to ask questions, right? Um, that you prepare these students to ask very critical questions of the world around them. Um, and you support them with that when you're, they're in your ethnic studies classroom. But the goal is that once they leave your classroom, they are still asking these questions. Yeah, I think a very interesting quote that I saw in that video that I think was attributed to Malcolm X was that, um, uh -huh. I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, it was something along the lines of, history being one of the most rewarding subject matters you can study because therein lies the truth, which the truth often leads to wellness and freedom. And that's the kind of sense that I get from your answer and just from ethnic studies a little that I've read about it as well. And I just think that's something that a lot of people can agree with, right? I mean, if we're able to take history and learn from the past and use that truth of how um, that informs the world that we live in today um, to see how things you know, kind of developed and how and why the things are the way that they are today. I think it goes hand in hand with what you're talking about as well, about being critical about these systems and moving forward with them and improving them in whatever way we can. Would you say that's like an accurate um, or I guess something similar to what you were saying? Yeah, you know, definitely. I think that it's so important for students to gain the knowledge and skills it needs to ask questions. Like when you say truth, Victor, right, in, in the classroom, truth whose truth are we talking about? The truth yeah. for who, right? Like we've been looking at these textbooks, at least growing up, I know I saw textbooks where we only briefly talked about, it was almost skipped over the, the, the topic of slavery, right? We never really, I actually never learned about Latino history at all up until uh, college. It was maybe the, the Cesar Chavez day when we talked about him briefly, maybe Dolores Huerta, but that was it, right? It was a very heroes and holidays type of truth that I learned in, in elementary and middle school. And so my goal is the opposite of that. My goal is that students are able to really think transformatively and, and to envision a world where the community, it's not just one person, the community is really fighting for and reimagining it. Yeah, you may Yes, exactly what, exactly what you said, Victor. Um, <laughs> right, we're, we're uh, well, definitely yeah. what Malcolm X said, for sure. Um, yeah. As far, well, I can definitely agree with everything that was said here in terms of how um, ethnic studies is beneficial and how having that information can definitely help somebody navigate uh, their life a little bit more effectively and uh, be a part of like something greater than themselves, I would say. But as far as, uh, let, let's take the other approach, I guess, to the conversation. What, are you, what would you say are some of the consequences of not being exposed to this information or um, knowing about the ethnic studies? You know, I think the first consequence that comes to mind is internalized oppression, right? Internalizing that maybe you are less than others, that maybe you are less pretty, um, that maybe you are less important, less smart. Um, when you don't see your history, you begin to internalize those mixed messages, right? Um, and one of the things that we do in my classroom in ethnic studies is to understand what what role the media plays in in shaping the world we see and how we interpret the world. And, and you know, I ask my students, what kind of dolls, dolls, just simple as Barbies, right? Did you all have growing up? And I know that 
this obviously wasn't an ill intention from my parents, but I definitely know that the only Barbies that I had, which came to be the definition of beauty growing up until I understood the world around us, were blonde, blue-eyed Barbies, right? And my students tend to really share that experience. I never had a black Barbie, a Latino Barbie, and they were all skinny um, Barbies, right? Like what, what, imagine this three, four-year-old child, and you know, this still exists around the world where this is still happening in our households where we indirectly are telling our students, our, sorry, our children, um, what beauty is, right? And they begin to internalize, they begin, I mean, they're not asking these critical questions at three years old, they're just playing with the same blonde Barbie, blue eyed Barbie, right? Um, and so I think ethnic studies really allows people to understand and question the systems and the things that we see around us in books, in the media, on the internet, and so forth. Yeah, I think a very important part of that equation as well is just the, um, like you mentioned, the subconscious, I guess, um, internalization of your own oppression, I guess, uh, just because when you see things on screen or in media and you, you're not critical about what you're seeing, it's very easy to internalize um, those things, not even just about yourself, but about other oppressed minorities. And when, you know, we're voting about policies of how to do this and that, and we have these biases that we're not even aware of that can definitely in influence how we view the world and consequently how we behave and how we vote. I think that's definitely a... Um, well, something that could definitely lead to negative outcomes, I would say. To kind of follow up on what you were saying as well is that I feel like when you don't have that information or when you don't have a sense of where you're coming from, I guess another way to put it would be that sometimes you take uh, socioeconomic problems or just so uh, problems in society as personal ones, right? To kind of give an example here that I wrote down, um, just imagine being denied a job at, or, you know, housing or a loan due to some implicit or explicit bias um, held by a member of a dominant group uh, about your race or ethnicity or gender, which is predicated on centuries of propaganda and the superiority and inferiority of races, which themselves are based on unsound eugenicist arguments most often than not. And then those arguments and those beliefs are used as justifications for imperialism, colonialism. And in modern days now, we're seeing um, it used for the disenfranchisement of minority groups in terms of like voter suppression and state-sponsored violence. And something like that, something like being denied a job or a loan, a lot of the times we do see that as personal failures. And I guess there's an argument to be made that it can be that individual's fault, but we don't always know that, right? This person can be can have implicit biases or explicit biases. And again, you're, if you don't know that these things are at play, it's very easy to interpret that as like a failure on your own part. And... Yeah, I think exactly. not being informed about these things can definitely, I guess, make those type of things self-fulfilling prophecies where all of a sudden you do start believing those negative things about yourself and inter internalizing that oppression. Definitely. And what I do want to add on to that, Victor, is that part of ethnic studies is talking about institutions and systems. And mm -hmm. so we definitely do talk about institutional oppression in ethnic studies. And we definitely do talk about what that means and what that looks like in the to prison pipeline, what that looks like in graduation rates, what that looks like in Black and Latino folks who are in prison, um, and for what, um, you know, and for what uh, actions that they committed compared to, to white counterparts, right? So we do talk about these things. And so students begin to identify them, right? And they begin mm -hmm. to realize um, what institutional oppression looks like, because sometimes these, these, forms of oppression, right, racism, sexism, and so forth, are not 
necessarily something that needs to be said. It's seen in the people who are, um, you know, in, in the institution getting paid for um, a lot more than other folks, right? It's it's in the institution, it's in the funding, it's in all of these different things that are embedded within our multiple institutions. Um, it's not always out there in your face. So students um, are in ethnic studies exposed to being able to identify that. Yeah, and that's, that's the thing as well, that a lot of these behaviors nowadays are a lot more subtle, just because as I would say society becomes a little bit more progressive, a little bit more educated. It's harder for, you know, flat out racists to come out and say and discriminate or just be discriminatory. Although we've recently recently slipped back ever since, you know, the whole Trump fiasco. But yeah, I think these things are so subtle sometimes. And that's why a lot of people don't even realize when they are uh, partaking in these type of uh, behaviors that are oppressive. It's that's why it's systemic, right? That we kind of it's like that old um, idiom, or I guess I would say story about like the fish not knowing that what water is, that they're even swimming in water just because they're so normalized to that, t- that type of, um, I guess, systems or, and um, I guess societal expectations and norms. So it's, okay. it's definitely, if you don't have that information, you know, how are you even going to, first of all, be aware of it or acknowledge it? Second of all, I would say um, taking the necessary steps to advocate for its reform or the abolition, I would say, of certain systems that aren't conducive to like a prosperous society um yeah definitely as far as like uh, i'm actually curious because it sounds like you're you understand the value in ethnic studies and education i would say in as like a more general or a broader uh perspective what kind of prompted you to um get into education in the first place i definitely think it was my experience in college and my exposure in college i had a lot of really beautiful experiences in college that prompted me to become an educator. Honestly, growing up and not understanding systems, I went into college ready to be a lawyer, right? Like I want to be a lawyer. And the reason behind that is, of course, money, right? Monetary uh, compensation. And and I went to uh, a high school in near Culver City, and it was super um, academic centric. I, I, I was very involved in school. I took 13 AP advanced placement classes. Like I was set to be to do really well. Um, I was prepared for college. I did really well um, the first few semesters of college. Um, I could have easily gone to law school, but uh, luckily for me, I, in my second year, I continued working with this program called Chinachli. And in this program, it was a community program where we went out to high schools and we worked with students. We had workshops ranging from public health to higher ed um, to talking about systems. And I really love doing that work. And I actually recently had a, a student uh, reach out to me on Instagram and she graduated from CSUN just this past year. Um, and it was so nice to see that even the work that I did in college was fruitful in some way. And I got to my fourth year. So I kept working with this program in college and I really loved it. I really, really, really loved doing these presentations and working with these students in small groups. And I got to my fourth year of of college, right, ready to graduate, and I'm ready to apply to law school, but there's really nothing in me telling me, like, this is something you truly want to do. Like, there was nothing, I, you know, I had to sit down and ask myself, like, is there something that, that you need to, you know, is there a reason you're going into law school? And I couldn't answer that question for myself. Um, so I sat, you know, I sat down for a couple of months and just fi- tried to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, 
I was a history and Chicano studies. I was a history major and Chicano studies minor in college. I love my Chicano studies courses. Um, I looked into PhD programs. I wasn't quite sure if I wanted to do a PhD coming out of undergrad. It was a really big deal. Um, I had good grades. And so I really, uh, whatever I chose to do, I felt like I was going to do okay. And, um, and I had a couple friends who had gone into teaching already and they really, you know, they talked about how difficult it was, but they also seemed to be really happy with the, with the reward from that you get from teaching. And so mm-hmm. I looked into some, I, I looked into some ed programs and um, I finally decided and I was like, okay, I'm just going to go for it. And I'm going to apply to master's programs in teaching. I loved education all along and I loved ethnic studies all along. So it, it kind of just, the answer kind of came to me um, as I was sitting in a coffee shop trying to figure out what programs I wanted to apply to. Um, and it just felt very right. Um, and I, you know, I applied to USC, UCLA, a couple of other programs and, you know, I was accepted to all of these programs. I was really excited and I just waited to get my financial aid packages to see, um, who would be able to support me. And, and I know teaching is in a super amazingly paying job. So I wanted to make sure I didn't come out with like a million loans. Um, so UCLA gave me the best, uh, package and they had an ethnic studies pathway. And I was super interested in pursuing that. At the interview, the questions that they asked just seemed so relevant to the state of education. I don't remember the specific questions, but my experience in my graduate program with um, UCLA and and my advisors, um, Darlene Lee and Eduardo Lopez, was truly, truly beautiful. Um, And it was everything I could have expected from a program and more, because not only was it educational, not only did they prepare me to be a teacher, um, they also humanized me as a student and as a future educator. And so that's kind of how I came into teaching. Um, I don't take anything, uh, any of it back. I love it. I love teaching. Um, I will see how long, how much longer I teach. I, you know, I, I, I don't know if I'm going to want to go back and get a PhD one day. We'll see. But it, it <laughs> so far it's been a very rewarding, beautiful experience. Yeah. I would imagine, especially like um, we said, I mean, we know the, like, I guess people that actually take these uh, ethnic studies courses or know about it at like a more uh, or a deeper level, I would say, and you're able to like see the benefits that it provides for you. I, I can't imagine not wanting to go out and educate and inform the world about these amazing um, things that information or education can do for you. So, um, yeah, I think it's very easy to understand in that regard, um, which uh, I actually actually asked that question because I kind of want to start talking about the A-Rock video that you sent me, I think is what it's called. Um, in terms of the opposition that is being, uh, I guess, expressed by certain parties um, in terms of like furthering ethnic studies or adding to it, can you talk to us a little bit about what's going on in California specifically in terms of like ethnic studies and why some people might be against it? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, as of now, there has, uh, you know, been reports to the school board of our district to fully implement ethnic studies, but it's also... Uh, you know, a larger conversation in the state of California. Um, Ethnic studies very much is about understanding oppression, right? Understanding oppression and making sure that um, folks understand what that looks like, no matter what group it is, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But ethnic studies specifically comes historically from um, African-American, Asian-American, including Pacific Islander and Arab-American studies, uh, American Indian and Native American studies, Chicanx and Latinx studies, and of course, comparative ethnic studies and intersectional identities. Um, so I think the conversation is 
you know, the conversation that's being had in the state of California is what about everybody else, right? What about all the other groups uh, of folks that that could be included in ethnic studies? But I, you know, I want to I want to make a differentiation between multicultural education and also ethnic studies. Um, it's different, and uh, you know, ethnic studies is very much about those four racialized groups and there's definitely been a lot of backlash when it comes to including Arab American studies and and uh, Palestine. And would you say that's like the main opposition there and adding uh, because from what I understood from the video was that it, they weren't necessarily opposed to like adding um, Arab American studies, but more specifically how Palestine was going to be taught, correct? Yeah. Um, so I think there's definitely a lot of pressure around the erasure of Arab American studies um, from the ethnic studies curriculum and 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 the way that it that it is taught. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's really um, odd to me because like just listening to the uh, the video there, I guess, at least from the um, from when it started, I, the main three reasons why they opposed or are opposing the addition of the Palestinian uh, portion of American Arab studies is that um, I guess they oppose it, the idea of race as a social construct and, um, and prefer a biological definition, which itself, I don't know, I, I think I have issues with that as well. Uh, but also the inclusion of Rashida Talib, who's, I think, a House member or, yeah, a member of the House um, of, from yeah. Palestinian descent. Um, and then the third reason was just the word Palestine in itself not being accepted by the uh, State Department. Would you say that's like mm -hmm. generally the... The opposition that people are having towards it like those three main arguments yeah you know i think going back to the inclusion of arab american uh studies and ethnic studies i think a key part of the arab american experience very much is the struggle and uh for justice in palestine mm -hmm. um and the inclusion right and the the inclusion and acceptance of the liberation efforts of Palestinian folks um, in the curriculum, and so there's definitely a lot of pressure um, to 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 remove that, and and we want to make sure that we we support the Arab American and, and and struggle for justice in Palestine as well. Yeah, I mean, like our, our mm -hmm. I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry about that. Well, I was just going to say, like, yeah, it seems like really weird because I'm assuming that we have a lot of Palestinian Americans here um, in the States. And um, one of the gentlemen in that video was basically going over how Arab Americans actually played a huge part in um, the liberation of, um, well, I guess just the start of like ethnic studies, which itself um, was opposed in, I guess, similar ways, although obviously not exa exactly the same reasons, uh, from even being taught for black people or Latinx people or Chicanos or whatever label you want to use or whatever ethnic group you want to talk about, there seems to ha always be opposition to any type of addition to a curriculum that's targeted towards minority people or people that have been historically oppressed. And um, uh, yeah, I'm just not sure how I, I feel about that because it just seems very strange. I personally consider, you know, Arab, Arab America's like their own ethnic, um, I guess, group um, that has a presence here in the United States. So uh, I just, yeah, I, I, is that what the main contention of theirs is, is that it's more of like, a, that it belongs in like a multi-cultural uh, classroom instead of like an ethnic studies classroom or? Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, Palestine. Um, mm -hmm. There's definitely been, uh, you know, ethnic studies has always been under attack. Um, I think that one of the main um, points that folks 
talk about is the the including the Jewish experience. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that it's, you know, that I think it's very important that we that we do talk about our the Jewish experience. And I, I know I definitely do in my classroom in terms of when we understand oppression and the struggles of our Jewish brothers and sisters. Uh, I definitely do discuss that in my in my multiple classrooms. But um, there is different def- definitely a difference between anti-Semitism and the criticism of Israel and yeah. why it matters for us to also include the, uh, you know, why it matters for ethnic studies as a, as a liberatory practice for us to definitely include the Palestinian perspective. Um, and I recently, actually, after the after the podcast, I don't know if you want to uh, hop on and watch and some videos about this, but there was recently a Jewish Voice for Peace Bay um, who actually had a lot of Jewish educators and students who were saying yes to liberatory ethnic studies um, and talking a little bit about what it means to include Palestine and to make sure that we include Arab American studies and Palestine as central to ethnic studies. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely there's a distinction that um, I think most people would understand there. And because, of course, I think we could all agree that anti-Semitism is just wrong in all regards. Um, But another thing that I kind of wanted to touch on as well is just um, the colonial aspect of not including the word Palestine in a curriculum just because the State Department uh, does not accept it or recognize Palestine as a country. Um, So I think like that's just another Mm -hmm. form of colonialism that I think we need to well, I think it should be addressed, right? Because I think that, that would be one of the most um, effective arguments against these type of like uh, bad faith attacks. Because I mean, why would we, why let, uh, I guess, a government like dictate what is allowed to be taught? Um, I would consider that like a, um, like maybe an abstract case of like book burning in a sense, because uh, again, you are kind of erasing somebody's history, you know, through education, through law or through the political capital that one has. So is that something that you would agree with? Something that's just completely invalid just because of uh, a state department that doesn't want it being taught for political reasons? Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a lot of politics that are involved in, in the question of recognizing Palestine. And I think it is critical that when we do tell the story of Palestine, when we do acknowledge and, and, and teach the history, that we have to be inclusive of their voices, right? I think for a really long time, Palestine hasn't been able to tell their story through their voice. Um, and so I think that it, it is critical for them to be able to do that. And um, but a lot of the times it feels like, you know, what what is the, the, the right answer when, when it comes to the territory in that sense? Who gets to dictate that and why? And do we allow it? Um, and these are all questions that I feel sometimes we don't necessarily have answers to. Yeah, I think a very interesting point that I think, um, I forgot his name, I think his first name was Jason, but he was basically saying that if we don't tell the story of, you know, minority groups, who else is, you know, speaking about in terms of like Palestine and how you just mentioned that they deserve to have their stories heard. And it's very true, you know, I think there's like a concentrated effort in suppressing Palestine as like a country as a whole. And if somebody doesn't stand up for them, you know, who is? And I think it, it kind of has implications. And I think a lot of them were making the case that this goes further than just like, you know, acad- like an academic disagreement. So if, if they're not defended and allowed to tell their stories, it's, it's kind of, I wouldn't say hypocritical, but it's just, it goes against what ethnic studies um, aims for, you know? So one of the arguments that I guess they were making 
against the inclusion of uh, Palestine in these studies was uh, for some reason that the that they had a problem with the idea that race is a social construct and that they were preferring a more biological definition of race. And I'm not sure. Um, I mean, that just sounds kind of silly to me because it seems that race, by in large part, is a social construct rather than a. I mean, I'm sure there's like biological differences. There's variation from human to human, uh, even within that same race. So it just sounded a little bit weird to me, and I was wondering if you could, if you were able to expand on that, or is that something that you had read about? No, uh, there. You know, I I'm trying to think of if I've read up on that argument specifically, and I don't think that I have. Um, but that's a really good question. I I'm definitely gonna gonna, gonna take a look at it. Yeah, that's why, like, because I, I thought they were going to expand on it, but I think um, they either um, just didn't for, because it does seem like a silly argument to make, just because I would say that race, by and large part, again, is a social construct, just like a lot of different things. But I think the mm-hmm. argument that they were, or they were speaking of it as like a negative, because saying that something is a social construct necessarily makes it bad, which is not true at all, because I would say like most systems and most things that we hold true, such as like religion, money, national borders, laws. These things are all, in a sense, you know, intersubjective systems or socially constructed. And again, like even when we talk about like biology or from a biological perspective, it just depends on like where you want to draw those lines, you know, like where do you want to differentiate different races and wherever you draw those lines, it's still like very subjective and socially defined. So it just sounded like a very weird argument just from the get go. So I I just wasn't sure how that kind of fit into the whole, um, I guess, um, argument in terms of like why it shouldn't be or why they shouldn't include Palestine in the ethnic studies courses. But um, yeah, you know, I think with a lot of the pushback against the liberated ethnic studies model curriculum, I think we lose the focus uh, of ethnic studies, which is really to build solidarity among us, Mm -hmm. right? Build solidarity that makes us safer um, for like a larger shared purpose of understanding the world around us and the various systems that make up the world around us. So I definitely think that, you know, we we really don't want to water down our ethnic studies uh, curriculum. We want to make sure that um, that we are including the, the voices of, of, of the experience of Palestinian folks, for sure. Yeah. And in terms of like the whole process, do you like, has there been any updates have, um, has like the pushback on the part of like the people that are advocating uh, for Palestine? Have they, um, made any like major moves or has anything been decided yet? You know, I do believe that the original writers of the, of the ethnic studies curriculum that went up to the state and got rejected took, um, away their names, right? They, since the ethnic studies model curriculum was changed so much, um, they they decided that it no longer represented what they had originally written to be ethnic studies, mm-hmm. and so from my understanding, that's the latest on the on the on that front where folks who didn't feel comfortable with that they just decided to take their name off. Yeah, and I think hopefully that starts like a cascading effect, and other people start speaking up uh, because it looks like that video got like really good traction. So hopefully um, the pressure starts mounting. Mm-hmm, but um, to kind of shift gears a little bit, since I only have you here for a few more minutes, I did kind of want to get into more like, uh, I guess, like, well, politics in general, starting with uh, Biden's administration. Uh, since he got inaugurated and he became president, uh, what are your current thoughts about him and his and administration? Well, you know, Joe Biden was definitely not my first choice in in leading our country, but I think he was definitely the the lesser of of two evils. 
I know one of the issues that I've kept up with him on has been the reopening of schools, particularly because I'm a teacher. And I know that one of his promises was to reopen schools within the first 100 days of his presidency. And uh, so far, you know, based off of the, the, the vaccines and the rollout and how slow they are, I, I don't think that I mean, slow in the sense that my school, even now in March, has not been fully vaccinated and much less, you know, the families that we work with. You know, I definitely think that that was one of the promises that was not easily that shouldn't have been made more than anything because we didn't know how the virus was going to continue, whether an upwards trajectory or downwards. I definitely wish she had a stronger position against you know, cages at the border. I definitely wish that there was a lot more support for some of the communities that I work with. Actually, right after this meeting, I'm going to go drop off um, some frozen chicken and bags of food and money for one of my students that is in, in very high need. And, you know, that shouldn't be the case. Students shouldn't have to literally be struggling, especially our undocumented community. What are we doing to, to, to service undocumented community and to and to support our, our, our students most um, in need? Um, and I see it firsthand with my students that there's clearly not enough support for them. And so mm. just based on that experience right now, I think that there's a lot more that we could be doing. I know that they're working on passing another um another a bill to, to, to send out direct checks to folks. Um, and I, I, I do hope that that comes sooner than later. But then one of my questions is, well, then what happens to the communities that don't qualify for those checks, but still need it? I mean, there's a lot of questions. I mean, I think that no person could have perfectly addressed what is truly a global disaster that we're experiencing. Um, but I do think that there's always more that can be done. Um, but I'll be honest with you, um, Victor, I, I, I do read up on a couple articles here and there. But after the, the, the four years of Trump and the trauma that came with understanding and following the politics and the tweet, I, I have stepped back a little bit from from reading everything and every single article. And for a moment, I'm just, you know, taking I'm taking definitely uh, more than a couple of weeks to just get myself to, to start reading politics and news again because it's it's tough and i do current events with my students and even then i'm like do i really want to be doing all of this with them in the middle <laughs> of a pandemic because there's already a lot that we're we're talking about and seeing on our social media yeah i think that's one of the uh, things that one of my friends was saying as well that it just feels kind of nice to you know not have to be paying attention to politics just because of something dumb that Trump might say or some new cultural war that he wants to start. And I think there is some truth to that. But again, I think that politics is still like always going to be a pressing issue. And now more than ever is like when we should still be tuning in to make sure that this never happens again, just because there's already talk sure. of like, you know, Trump running again in 2024. And there's been some mm -hmm. very problematic things that I've also seen on like, um, I forgot, I, there was like a Republican convention recently where you know, talked, senators yeah, and I saw that. I was, mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I did um, where he where he addressed a speech. Yeah, <laughs> and they, there was I, just like a lot that. of intermingling with um, you know representatives and like people that are purportedly uh, white nationalist or um, self-identified sometimes as well. So it's um yeah I don't know. And then again, I think that somebody made a um 
like in comparison about like how Hitler came to power, about how like when he mm-hmm. first uh, rose to power to some extent, he later went to jail. But it wasn't until his second attempt that he actually took over the country and, you know, started his whole, well, everything that we know of about the Holocaust. So it's, um, I don't yeah. know, it's a little bit concerning. And I understand that, you know, even my, me myself, like, you know, I haven't really kept up much either just because it's nice to, you know, not have to like follow every little piece of like news um, that's being reported uh, at the federal level. So I completely understand that. And yeah. yeah by the- but, uh, but go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. sorry. Well, I was just going to say gonna very say quickly that the, the uh, bill actually passed as well, I think, today, uh, the Senate. So I think those checks should be coming uh, pretty soon, too, hopefully. Oh, good. And I hope that folks, you know, most in need really, really feel supported with. I mean, it's never going to be enough. It's almost it's exactly mm-hmm. in ele- in nine days. It's been, you know, a year since we left school. Um, so there's definitely a, a lot to make up for in terms of finances. But um, back to, to the to the politics part of it. Yeah, it's definitely scary. I mean, I don't know if you see the these new articles about uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, oh, the American politician, yes. who's like a far right conspiracy theorist. It, it is scary. Trust me. When I say I stepped back from looking at politics, I just mean I don't check every five minutes because there's no new tweets. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, I still, you know, I wake up, I read a couple articles, and then I go about my day rather than checking every hour. Um, but it's scary to think about. There's definitely people out there who are not, should not be suitable to, to be leading the country as a representative, as a senator, or anything like that. So, yeah, no, it's definitely not time to step back. If anything, we should continue to be critical of the systems that are still in place, right? These are still the s- same systems that were under Trump. And how do we push to change those systems? And that's always going to be one of the critical questions that we need to continue to address, no matter who's president or where they come from, right? No, yeah, for sure. Just like reading about her as well is like very, I don't know, it's very frightening. Like, well, I know that there's like um, articles that I've uh, read specifically from like the Atlantic and I think the New York Times as well. They kind of links that whole movement, like the QAnon movement to like, I guess like relig- religiosity, specifically like the Christian aspect of it as well, uh, which is like being mm-hmm. weaponized in a weird way. Uh, yeah, I don't know how I feel about that either, because it just seems that religion is in a very weird place in the nation. Um, and it's, um, yeah, I don't know, like, how it influences, like, this type of thinking as well. Because I, I think in the previous episode, I kind of talked about the links that people are making between, like, religious thinking or just, like, the lack of critical thinking in some cases to, like, the um, the uh, exposition to, like, these type of conspiracy theories and then, like, the belief in them. And I don't know, like, do, do you have, like, anything there that you think might need to be addressed or because i think this you is know, like very I, a very serious thing and it i don't know like where it stems from uh but it does seem like there's a very like like a uh, religious or like christian aspect to like that whole movement and how do you feel about that or like do you have any thoughts about that you know i think one of the most important topics that are related to exactly what you're saying are echo chambers in the media mm-hmm. And how people just immerse themselves in echo chambers, whether it's religion, philosophy, or or political beliefs, right? They're in these echo chamber bubbles of people who believe exactly the same thing. And these beliefs are amplified and reinforced by media, right? They follow the same 20 conspiracy theorists, and then that spreads to another 20 people and they're all kind of just building on this echo chamber of, honestly, misinformation. And so when you think about 
when you think a lot about religion and the role it plays, it also has to do a lot with what communities of religion you are in echo chambers with, right? Mm -hmm. um, whether, yeah. you know, whether it's a church or whether it's a social media page or whether whatever it is, um, sometimes, and it's funny you asked me that question because the other day I, I was watching this YouTube video about a reformed white supremacist. Uh, I'm not sure if, you, if you've watched videos like that, but he talks about how he truly believed these things that sound crazy to us, but mm -hmm. he believed in white supremacy. He believed in religion. He believed in all of these different things that kind of played a, a role with what, uh, you know, with one another. And he was super far right conspiracy theorist. And it wasn't until he went to college and actually got exposed to other things that he was able to break from that. And he calls himself reform white supremacist. And he actually has like a book and he's been on quite a few talk shows. Um, if I find a link, I'll send it to you later. But he talks about what that was like and how he truly, truly believed these conspiracy theorists and he just wasn't exposed to anything else. Like there was nothing else that he saw. It was all like social media pages he follows, the church that he went to, the friends that he had. He was from a small town. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's very, there's a lot of implications that come with, with the media and the exposure to, to certain channels that we just stick with. Yeah. I think I, I have seen like a, or like read a few articles about that as well, of people being reformed. And I think it just goes to the testament that the less you know, you know, the more that you are guided by fear in a sense, or the less mm -hmm. critical you are as well, like things, and you're more willing to accept like these type of like outrageous arguments, which is kind of like the link that I guess um, that article was trying to draw. Because, well, I guess the, the argument that they make is that religiosity, because in itself is a little irrational, and how when you... I guess, like, frame thinking in a certain way, you're more likely to accept other, like, irrational arguments. And they kind of, I guess, juxtapose this with uh, meat consumption and COVID, how um, a lot of people don't see how these two things are, like, linked, but there is a link uh, from, you know, consuming meat, like, as the whole world does, and to these pandemics. And a lot of people have adamant beliefs against those type of links, because, again, we're all so accustomed to eating meat that we don't realize how it causes these type of, like, um, issues or like these problems later down the line and why it's so hard for people to like accept that or like even accept uh, the possibility of change and I, I don't know i think there's like something there I, i'm not 